If you would please turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. I will be reading Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Galatians 3, verses 23 and 24. And now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, purposed law from a word from all eternity. And Father, so I ask, For the power of Your grace as a teacher to unfold the truth of Your Gospel, of Your workings in history, of this passage. I have great confidence, Father, that You did not ordain Paul to say stuff that, yes, is very difficult on first, second, or forty-second reading to understand. You did not mean for us to hide it, but to seek to understand what He meant. So help us this morning. And more than that, help us in what we see to see how pertinent it is for our daily walk with You. With Your Son. By the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in our laps. To the glory of His holy name. Amen. We live in a time of cheap grace. Which really means a watered-down gospel. There is a lack of weightiness and seriousness of joy, happiness, seeking in the American church. And I think most of it is rooted in a misunderstanding of the biblical Christian walk of life which itself is the pathway to make it to heaven for every person who has been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The best I can put it, 33, 34 years as a Christian in American evangelicalism, that in many people's minds it goes something like this, God gave us the law to Israel, to the world. He gave commandments. Don't murder. Love the Lord your God. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The law of the tithe. And here's the misconception. God gave that in order that we would do it and therefore be in His good graces by our doing it and be saved. But we all found out we can't. We've all sinned. And if you sin in one part, you've blown the whole thing. Okay? So He gave the law and that's what it showed. And then God goes to plan B. He sends His eternal Son to become one of us in order to save us from our sins and to give us His righteousness, which He absolutely did. But it goes off the track by saying, therefore, since Jesus has come, the law, what it did, was like a good teacher, a good tutor or a schoolmaster. It took us by the hand and it led us to Jesus to find grace. That was the work of the law. And since we've come to grace and faith in Jesus... The law and its purpose 
is essentially over because it led us to Christ. And what's really going on in many people's hearts, shown by their mouth and their actions, and here is the very dangerous deception. Therefore, there's no more use for God's commands in the Christian life of grace, really. Because we're under grace. And grace, they say, is in contradiction to God who commands. Those are two different ways. And therefore, since we've asked Jesus into our hearts, since we are in grace, we are in Christ, stop being overly concerned about God's commands concerning your sexual morality. I mean, because really it has nothing whatsoever to do with whether you will make it to heaven or not. Stop being so concerned about God's commandments. In the law, you're under grace. Stop being concerned about the unforgiveness in your heart toward that person. Don't be overly concerned about your mean-spiritedness toward your spouse, about your religious arrogance and pride. Don't be concerned about tithing in support of the kingdom of God. Don't be overly concerned about whether you are active in loving your neighbor as yourself. Because if, if you get overly concerned about that, that would mean you're moving away from grace. Okay. I got one comment, if that made any sense to you, on that structure. It's hogwash. It does not understand the gospel of God's power of grace in the way He's laid it out in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is a misconception. See, what God has done is He has spent over a thousand years within history writing a lesson book. Using His chosen people Israel in order to write the book. And He did it for any of you who call yourself a Christian. That's why He wrote the lesson book of the Hebrew Scriptures. It is filled with God's promises. And it is filled with warnings. Don't live in disobedience of unbelief. He wrote it so that we Christians would not rebel by living against God's moral commands like Israel and find ourselves hearing the words of Jesus on Judgment Day. Depart from Me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Go something like that. And, when you look at verse 24, Probably most of you have been taught what Paul means there, and I'm going to say he doesn't. Is that Paul says the law was like a great teacher that we come under and it grabs us by the hand and it leads us up to Jesus and we get saved. That's, I'm going to argue that that's not what Paul is saying at all in verse 24 when he says the law was our guardian until Christ or his kingdom unto lead us to Christ. So I'm going to go. But before I get there, I'm going to spend 90% of the sermon in the context so that when we just come to verse 24 and read it, I just hope you'll say, I see it. Okay. Here we go. If you're there in Galatians 3, notice verses 23 and 24 flow right out of verses 21 and 22. So, we must review what Paul has said there to get a grasp on it first. In verse 22, Paul emphatically makes it clear 
that the problem with Israel, or any of us, is our sin nature. The law of God that He gave through Moses was not the problem. The problem was we human beings, represented by the lesson book of Israel, are dead to God. Have no life toward Him. No desire for Him. No inclination to rely upon Him or to trust in Him, which the law always demanded. So He gave the law and sin became utterly sinful because He gave the law for the most part without the Holy Spirit's power to make them alive in order that they could obey the law with a heart of faith. Remember? So let's read verses 21 and 22. See if you see it. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But that's not what happened. Instead, what? Verse 22. The Scripture did this. The law did this. It imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay. Notice that purpose God had. So that the promise of justification, we have seen that's one of the core things he means, being made right with God, being saved. The promise of salvation would be clearly seen that it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. It's given to those who believe. Okay, that's his purpose. The purpose for what? Look at the context. That's the purpose for why God, 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 God acted. He had a purpose. He had a plan. He had a sovereign plan. That's the purpose for why God locked up in a jail cell. Why He imprisoned all things under sin. Or as verse 19 says, that's why God gave the law in order to increase sins or transgression until Christ came. The imprisoning of Israel under sin. Now, historically, got to get this. There's a timeline. God's act of imprisoning Israel from Moses, giving of the law, to Christ for about 1,400 years was a means to an end. It wasn't, I have so much joy in locking everybody up in sin with the law. No. He says, I have so much joy in the end, the goal, that to get there, I'm going to do this first. You see, God is absolutely just in justifying the ungodly, the unrighteous. Because He does it through Jesus. He upholds justice. And what He's doing is He is placarding His own glory in mercy through Jesus Christ. And He purposed to do it not before He had the background of the canvas painted absolutely black, dark, of the sin running its course to the full through legalism. And then, His wrath is shown clearly. And then, He sends forth His Son so that when those whom He is saving are saved, they will feel the depth of the grace to its fullness. He had a plan. 
That's why He imprisoned Israel. That's why He caused sin to become utterly sinful through them. And then legalism ran its course. And in the midst of it, He sends His Son. This is how Paul says it in Romans 11. Just listen for a moment. In Romans 11, verse 32, and he uses the exact same word as he does in Galatians 3.22 with the word that's translated imprisoned. He says this, For God has imprisoned all people, the Jew and the Gentile, all people unto disobedience. He's not done. So that He may have mercy. That's His goal. And the imprisoning is the means to that end. God does everything for a reason. And the ultimate purpose is to radiate His glory through mercy to many. Okay. Now, I hope you're following me. I just turn now in your Bibles to Romans 5. Because in Romans 5, what I've just said there... Paul says here in Romans 5 very clearly that God had a purpose in His sovereign will of increasing sins by giving Israel the law. He had a goal. That wasn't the end. That wasn't the goal. That was a means to an end. And that goal was that grace would exceedingly abound more and more against sin increasing. Look at verses 20, 21, Romans 5. Now the law came in, why? In order to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, here's his goal, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Increased sin. Placarding, showing sin to be sin and its increase was purposed as a means, not the end goal. It's not the end or the goal that God's shooting for. It's the means to something greater. Verse 20b. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then he goes on in verse 21 with a, with a purpose clause where he unfolds specifically more what he means there. So that as sin reigned in death. The context is Adam plunged the whole human race into sin and death came through him. And sin reigned through death in everything that's broken in the world and in you. As sin reigned in death, grace also, with that as a backdrop now, might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, why does God do this? So that grace would be seen and experienced as reigning over sin and death and hell. The ultimate purpose of the law, increasing sin and imprisoning sinners, was for the dark, dark backdrop of sin and God's judgment and wrath against sin. In order that when it's time and Christ goes forth and the Gospel goes forth, it will go forth against that very sharp, dark backdrop so that the brightness of the light of the Gospel of Christ would shine all the clearer. But Paul wasn't done. He didn't just say, God had a purpose in letting sin run its course. You know, that grace may abound. He didn't leave it there. Because He has a purpose to say, all of the law, all of the goal of what the law had to do, all of human history, 
The eternity of grace unendingly that is in the future. No, 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 no. He's going to make sure that everyone understands that is all based upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying the point of all history is for the purpose of magnifying the glory of God through Jesus Christ. That's why God created the universe. That's why God called Abraham. That's why 430 years later, through Moses, He gave the law. And under Moses, until Christ came, He was preparing something so that when the Gospel would go forth, it will go forth in its fullness. That's why the incarnation in the life lived and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. For the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more thing that we shouldn't miss. There's another word there in verse 21. The word righteousness. Listen for it. So that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the question is, what is it about Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life? The answer here is righteousness. Not our righteousness. He's made it clear through Romans. We don't have any righteousness of our own. But He means Jesus' righteousness and His humanity is what leads to eternal life. I'm not reading that into the text. Just look up two verses to verse 18. That's the righteousness he's referring to here in verse 20 of Romans 5. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam, led to condemnation of the whole human race, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all. That's what he means in verse 21. So that if sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel. Grace justifies hell-bound, wrath-deserving sinners. And it does it on the basis of a man born of Mary, Jesus the Christ. His perfect human righteousness in obedience to God. Yes, that means equal to obedience to His law. He did it for us. In this way, Paul says, Grace triumphs over sin and over God's wrath toward us, our condemnation. And for everyone in this room right now, unless you be confused about the Gospel, if you want to be saved by that Gospel, you can. Believe. Cling to Him and you will be. Don't be confused. Okay. What we've just seen there about God's purpose of grace shining, the backdrop of sin now. I want you to go back to Galatians now. Okay. That's why Galatians 3, verse 22 says, so that. The promise 
by faith, promise of justification, by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's what Paul's getting at. Now, got that? That's where now our text, verses 23 and 24, come in now. What are they doing there? They are a restatement of what he has already said in verse 22. Unfolding it more specifically. So verse 23. Now, before faith came, we, not you, not even the Gentile Galatians, we, Jews, were held captive under the law. Imprisoned. Until the coming faith would be revealed. So, what's he saying? He is specifically talking about the law in the context imprisoning, holding people, the Jews, in a jail cell of their sin. From Moses to Christ. That's what Paul means. He says the law therefore, because of our sin, as Jews from Moses to Christ, acts as a prison guard. Not a freedom giver. Locked up and condemned in our sin to all the unregenerate Jews. Those who were not made alive by new birth, by the Spirit. Even to, as he said in verse 19, to the increasing their sinfulness with the law. Okay. I'm not going to go to verse 24 yet. I'm going to take numbers of minutes now to ask a large theological, biblical theological question. That's this. Why did God give this spiritual law, which is to be responded to from soft hearts of faith, or you're not obeying it, period, if you don't do that, Why did He give this spiritual, holy, perfect, righteous law that demands a heart of faith to His people Israel whom He did not cause to be born again in order to obey it for the most part? Why did He do that? That's the question. Now first, what I want to do, what I just said there, I just want to, I want to at least back it up instead of just having a Joe LeMay statement for a minute. Show you that it is clear that God did purpose to give the law and for the most part to not regenerate or give the Holy Spirit to the majority of Israel so that they could obey it. So, for instance, in the book of the law, First five books of the Bible, the Torah, Moses, Deuteronomy 29 is clear. To this day, Israel, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that here sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it, when He comes? He hasn't given it. He gave them the law, but He hasn't given you a heart and eyes and ears to see the beauty and the treasure that God, the lawgiver, is to you. Why? One more. Paul, in the New Testament, ponders this 
is a close friend of the resurrected Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. And he says this in Romans 11, 7 to 10. What Israel, his people, what Israel sought so earnestly, what? righteousness. Okay. What they sought so earnestly, Israel did not obtain it. But the elect, meaning the elect among Israel, there was always a remnant. David obtained it. Moses obtained it. Caleb obtained it. Joshua obtained it. Jeremiah obtained it. Many people you never heard of. But it was a small minority because they were elect. But the elect did obtain it from Moses to Christ. He says, though, the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of... Wait a minute. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes so that they could not see and ears so that they could not hear to this very day, first century, about 55 A.D. And Paul says... I mean, and Paul goes on to say, and then David says... May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Why? I submit to you the reason why is because God in His wisdom was writing a lesson book for Christians. Whether Jew or Gentile, that's why. If you either turn here or listen to the prophet Ezekiel for a moment. In Ezekiel 5, here's a taste of it within the lesson book. Ezekiel 5, 13-15. Thus, the Lord speaking through Ezekiel, Thus, Israel, shall my anger spend itself. And I will vent my fury against them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord Yahweh, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations, the Gentiles, all around you. And in the sight of all who pass by, you shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury with furious rebukes. I am Yahweh. I have Israel, the history of Israel laid out in your Bible from Moses to Christ. They are the lesson book for when the Gospel of Jesus Christ came, it would go with the lesson book to the ends of the earth. But our text lets us know they were a lesson book here until Christ. Which is the theme throughout Galatians 3. In verse 19, God gives the law so that sins would increase until the offspring comes. Jesus the Christ comes. In verse 22, He does this imprisoning work so that the promise through faith in Jesus Christ 
in verse 23, now before faith came, we are held captive under the law. We are imprisoned until the coming faith, which comes with Christ, would be revealed. So he says, it is the Christ event in history that ushers in the beginning of the Gentile mission goes to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles and we're still in the time that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles because the lesson book was complete. It was complete technically 400 years later, but it wasn't complete in God's purposes. He wanted those 400 years and Alexander the Great and coming and doing what he did and then the Roman Empire, etc. And then Judaism itself developing in those silent year periods that when you come on the scene, there's Jesus talking to all these different sects. What's happening? He wanted all that to take place. And then as Paul will say in Galatians a little bit further, in the fullness of time, God was ready. Everything was set. He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The lesson book was complete. And within the law of the lesson book then, that had these temple, tabernacle laws, which pointed to Christ, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He's the temple. They pointed to Christ. Those temple laws, the sacrificial system of the killing of animals for guilt offerings and sin offerings and vegetable offerings, etc. That whole system pointed to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The priesthood pointed to the high priest. So, so those laws that you find still in Moses now, we know they, they run their course. They drop off in the Gospel. You're not obligated to do any of those. They drop away those laws. The cocooning or separating laws for God's physical people, the Jews, in writing the lesson book, separating them from the rest of the world through ceremonial circumcision through their dietary laws of kosher diet, through their kinds of washings, through their Sabbath keeping, through their festivals and new moons. All those laws, you can find them in Moses, they fall away because Christ has come. But the moral law, like, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. When you become a Christian, that moral law, it's not like, oh, no, 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 don't pay attention to a command. That's applicable. That, that's supposed to be the Christian's life. The moral law, do not commit adultery. That doesn't fall away. I, we're not, no, no restraints for Christians. We're under grace. So I have sexual relations with someone else's spouse. That doesn't fall away. Stealing, coveting, false testimony. Those laws don't fall away with the coming of Christ. But what we see in the Gospel, and Paul is clear in the book of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because you have come alive by the Spirit. And thus you're believing in Him. You love Him. He's your treasure. And you understand, Christ kept the law on my behalf. And He put away my guilt. He took away wrath. He took away condemnation based upon nothing I ever do. And then you go to verse 4 of Romans 8. And Paul says, He did all of this, Christian, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. In us who? 
us who are living not according to the flesh, which is against God's law, but walking according to the Spirit, which loves God's law. Oh, I hope you see it. I'm going to... What if, I wonder, think about it, for a large majority of us evangelicals, I am one, what if someone just got up, I'm going to preach a two-minute sermon besides people being very happy, and they just said something like this, Christian, do you understand the Gospel? Hear me clearly. If you profess Christ, you are obligated to obey God's commandment to love other people. You're obligated. Oh, let me just... You know what that means? That means when you do that, you fulfill God's law of the Ten Commandments. So keep them. Would you think that's a person who is a legalist? I'm going to re-click here slowly because that's exactly what Paul says to the church. It row. Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love. Okay, don't miss it with... Okay, oh. You owe something. <laughs> You're obligated to love each other, Christians. Now why? For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Well, what do you mean, Paul? He says, oh, well, you know what I mean. The commandments, and he goes to the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Oh no, but I do that because I fell in love with that man who happens to be the husband of another woman. No, it's not love, it's viciousness toward him and his wife, toward your soul. That's what that is. Viciousness. No, 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 it's not love. Love, as the commandments say, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. In any other commandment, they're summed up in the Word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And that's how the Apostle speaks. Actually, Paul will say it again in Galatians 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or to the Corinthians, he will write to them, for neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. Because Paul goes, those have dropped off. <laughs> they mean nothing. Don't get caught up in all that stuff that is gone now. But he said, but then he says, but what counts for everything is the keeping of the commandments of God. And so, the lesson book was Israel under the law without the Holy Spirit's indwelling power of new birth so that they could keep it. That was the predominant lesson. There's the remnant of the elect, and we have examples of those who are of faith. But predominantly, Paul says, God was doing a work, and He was writing a book. So that when Jesus came and rose and then ascended, the Gospel for now for 2,000 years goes out, and it goes out with a book. You call it the Old Testament. It's a lesson book for believers in Jesus. And that is exactly how the New Testament writers use it. Paul writes, as we heard read earlier this morning, in Romans 15.4, Christian, Jew or Gentile, believer in Jesus, whatever was written in former days, it was written for our instruction, so that 
through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And one more. I'm just, I'm just, I debated, but I'm just going to, I want to read it again. I know I read it a couple weeks ago. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. He's preaching. He, he knows the gospel of grace. He's not a legalist. He hates legalism. So we've got to figure out, okay, Paul, has it worked? And so in 1 Corinthians 10, starting with verse 5, he says, after laying out under Moses in the wilderness, rebellion after rebellion, because they weren't born again for the most part, just a few of them were. The vast majority weren't, and all they did was rebel. And so Paul says, with most of them, he's talking to Christians, with uh, two Christians he's talking to about Israel, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were, by God, overthrown in the wilderness. He brought judgment upon them. Now, these things took place as examples for us Christians. Why? So that we Christians might not desire evil as they did. And now he starts to apply it to the church. Uh, and I'm, he puts them in imperative forms, means commands. Whew, in the New Testament, do not be idolaters as some of them were in the lesson book. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And God killed 23,000 of them in one day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor are we to grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things, Paul says, happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And therefore, let any professing Christian who thinks that he stands take heed to the lesson book. Lest he or she fall. One of the main lessons that's demonstrated in Israel's History of receiving God's good, holy, spiritual, merciful law without receiving new birth in order to have a heart to obey it was so that we would have examples of what not to do. So that the book would spur us who have fled for refuge in Jesus Christ. Spur us on to persevere in loving Christ more than any other. Until death. Now, that's that large picture. Back to a part of that picture. Galatians 3. Paul has been clearly saying, one of God's strange works in writing this large lesson book is a strange work. It was to give the law to His people Israel in order to increase transgressions until Christ came. Verse 19 is what it says. And God did this by giving the law without causing them to come alive to Him through new birth. 
That's verse 21. And Paul says the result of that, and let's read it together, is verses 22 to 24. So what happened then? The Scripture, which contained the law written, it imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came with the coming of Christ, this is what I'm saying historically, Paul says, we Jews were held captive under the law. We're imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Let me just say it differently. So then, the law became our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, now carefully, look at verse 24. Focus, I know we've got about 12 more minutes. Just focus here. Verse 24 is interpreting what he just said in verse 23, where he says, The law imprisoned, it held captive. These are not positive things, these are negative imagery here, okay? And so he says, In other words, the law, and literally it should be become, it's not the to be verb, it's kagenen. Okay. The law, it, it became to Israel. Oh, he says, here's a metaphor. You all know this Greek word. It became a pedagogos. We'll get there in a second. It became to us a pedagogos. Prison guard, imprisoned, locked up. Oh, the law became, here's another one, a pedagogos until Christ. It became because of their sin and it caused them to be more sinful. It imprisoned and condemned them and that was the vast majority of the work of the law for that time period. Now, I want to quote for a second Douglas Moo, one of the major commentators on the book of Galatians concerning this significant Greek word, paedagogos, which is translated guardian in the ESV or tutor in some, or schoolmaster. Moo writes, What Paul intends to convey with this word has been much debated. One view, given classic representation in the famous language of the King James Version, goes like this, The law was our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, okay, is that, he goes on, that because of the King James, one interpretation is that the Pythagogos represents the law as a positive educating force that brings people to Christ. Okay. He goes on, nevertheless, the nature of the word in the ancient world and the context of Paul using it here, they combine, and I totally agree with him, they combine to make clear that Paul's use of the imagery is negative. In other words, the Pythagogos, he goes on to say, this person, almost always a male, usually a slave, had the responsibility of caring for the young children, seeing that they did their chores, got back and forth to school safely, and so forth. They were not teachers and were sometimes noted for the harsh discipline that was considered indispensable for raising children well. So I'm convinced what Paul is doing, clearly from the context and the use of how the word was used, what a pedagogos was, is that it doesn't have this positive idea of leading to Jesus. It, the the pedagogos had no power to make the Jews alive, 
to God, the law becoming a paedagogos to them. It was a custodian. It ruled the kid's life. Even the kid's going to be that guy's master someday. Doesn't matter. Right now, you're obeying me. And that's what it did. It like, it constrained the child, Israel, in its sin. And then, that period from Moses to Christ ended with the Gospel going forth to the Gentiles with all kinds of lessons. Be like David here. Don't be like my people Israel here where I brought judgment and wiped the northern kingdom out. Don't be like Judah as I warned and warned and warned and hardened your heart because I will bring Babylon. It's lessons after lessons. So here's my question to us then. Christian, are you allowing God's Word in this passage this morning to hit you? To mold you? To change the way you go about your daily Christian walk? Because believer, God is patient. God patiently devoted over 1,400 years in order to write a lesson book so that we Christians can have warnings. Dead end. Cliff. Don't go there. And don't take God's purpose in writing this book for you lightly. He did it so that professing believers in Jesus would not live in the unbelief of disobedience illustrated through Israel. Our sin... Oh, the longer you walk with Christ vigilantly, the more aware you are of your sin. And our sin is pictured, it's mirrored throughout God's lesson book, throughout the history of Israel. Why? So that we won't turn away from Christ into loving money. So that we won't turn away from Christ into falling in love with another person's spouse. So that we won't turn away from Jesus into neglecting being present in the lives of fellow members of Christ's church to bless them. Paul said, these things were written so that we would not desire evil as they in the book did. What I want to do is invite the preacher. It's essentially what he's doing. Most scholars even think what we have in the New Testament called the letter to the Hebrews was a sermon and just hear Him by the Holy Spirit illustrate what I've been trying to say this morning. Because He's preaching not just to the Hebrews of the first century. He's preaching to sovereign grace fellowship and listen for His use of the lesson book. Therefore, I'm in Hebrews 3, starting with verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and he goes to Psalm 95, and he quotes it to him. Today, professing Christian in Jesus, today, if you hear His voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I the Lord was provoked with that generation and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known My ways. As I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. End quote. Now he he goes on. Christian, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you, like that, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, exhort one another every day. As long as you wake up and you can still say, it's today. Okay, Keep doing it so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because the truth is this, we do share in Christ absolutely if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As He said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter His rest? But to those who were disobedient. So, Christian, do you see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. That's why they're disobedient. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you in this church should seem to have failed to reach it. Because good news of the Gospel came to us just as it came to the children of Israel under Moses. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they, that is those words, were you not united by faith with those who listened? God sovereignly did not give new life for the most part to the majority of Israel from Moses to Christ while they are under the law. And you can see it and read it. Christian, He gave you life. You should be amazed. You were no more deserving. You should just look at your hands and say, I can't believe I'm a believer. I can't believe that I do see Jesus as the treasure in the field to me. He wrote a lesson book for you. He wrote a lesson book that's filled with promises. It's filled with the beauty of His glory. It's filled with warnings and punishment and wrath. He wrote a lesson book for all who see Jesus as the treasure. And that's why, if that's you right now, this sermon, the lesson book, is hitting you and spurring you on. In fear... If right now you're wondering, is it going to be done in three minutes or two so I can go talk about the worldly things on my mind right now? Fear. Test yourself. 
see if you're in the faith. If God thinks in His eternal wisdom that it was wise to not allow new birth for most of Israel, but to give them the law, so that you'll have the lesson book as He made you alive, so that you won't grow cold in heart, but will be spurred on by that lesson book, then we as the church ought to be people that are desperate to be absorbed and saturate that book into our souls. And we should understand the role of preaching in the local church. And we should understand the role of mutual encouragement in the life of the local church. I don't mean the organization of church with more programs to get plugged into. I mean the organic body dynamic organism that is the local church. To warn, to pray for, to exhort, to worship, to placard the beauty and the glory of Christ who saves us from such a deserved hell demonstrated through the lesson book. For faith has come. And that's why we're going to worship God right now with all of our hearts. And as we do, stand with me please. No, I don't know where I'm at with Him. If you want to be delivered from eternal punishment, you can. Just reach out and believe that Gospel of Jesus, your righteousness, who died for your sins. To the glory of His holy name. Amen.